Thank you, Dean Crowell. Thank you, AARP and Citizens Union and New York Law School. Thank you all for being here. Uh, this is a great turnout for an important discussion. Uh, as the Dean said, I'm Ben Max. I'm the editor of Gotham Gazette. Uh, if you don't subscribe to our newsletter, please find us at GothamGazette.com and sign up. You can get all our, our latest work each morning in your inbox, as well as news from around the city from other publications. Um, so we're going to get right to it. Uh, do our seven candidates still with us? Um, so we will um, have a variety of questions tonight. Some are from the two sponsor organizations, a bunch are from me, some are from folks on social media when I asked for questions for this forum who sent those along. Um, and we have a bunch of good questions ready for our seven candidates. Um, there won't be opening or closing statements. The first couple of questions you'll hear are, are pretty broad, which will take the place of, of closing statements. Most of the time, uh, I'll give you about a minute each to answer, um, but we do wanna obviously give you a chance to give thoughtful, detailed answers, but also with seven candidates, you know, keep things moving. There will be times where I, I might preface a question by saying I think we can handle this one in, in 30 seconds or so, and we have our gracious timekeepers here who are gonna keep time and just give you a 10 second sign here so you can wrap it up without me interrupting you, hopefully. Um, so, let's get to it. Um, I'm gonna let you actually introduce yourself when you give your first answer. Instead of, instead of going down the line and saying your names, why don't you introduce yourselves? And we're gonna start actually down at the other end and come towards me with Councilmember Espinal. Uh, before we get to the role of public advocate, take a minute and talk about who you are and what you've accomplished in your uh, public service in your career. Go ahead. Sure, I'm Rafael Espinal. Uh, some of my friends call me Raf, is that easier for you? Uh, but I was born and, raised in East, born and raised in East New York, the most disadvantaged neighborhood in the city uh, through the 80s and through the 90s. Uh, my whole entire life, I've always wondered why wasn't my neighborhood getting the same amount of resources as other neighborhoods in the city? So income inequality and, and, and equity was a huge uh, uh, issue that has driven me uh, through all of my teens and 20s and my time in office. So when I ran for office, I had one goal. How do I deliver uh, the most amount of resources to the people who live in my district? And how do we build affordable housing at a, every, in, at a, at a time when Brooklyn's always is ever changing and gentrification is taking hold? I am proud that in my first two years in office, I was able to deliver over a quarter of a billion dollars to East New York and put a plan in place that's gonna build over 3,000 affordable housing units for, for those at the lowest income levels. On top of that, I was able to push a plan that's gonna legalize basements in my district so that, so that senior homeowners can have access to a program that will finally be able to get them the extra income they need and deserve without the fear of the city cracking down on the legal basement units that they're probably renting out to other seniors as well. So I'm very proud of that track record. I've, I'm proud to say that what I, what I set out to accomplish when I first ran to office, I was able to do within my first few years. There's a lot more of work to be done, and I, and I do, truly do believe that the Office of Public Advocate will allow me to do that work. Thank you. Councilmember Roark. Okay, thank you, Ben, uh, so much. And thank you to Citizens Union and AARP and, of course, New York Law School for hosting this forum uh, this evening. First, let me begin by saying uh, Tish James left some very big shoes to fill. I think we can all agree on that. Doesn't matter what your politics are, you know, if you're running or not running, she did an incredible job and I have uh, full confidence that she's gonna do an amazing job as our next Attorney General. Uh, there are many qualified people running for this position. Um, it's great to be on the panel with so many friends and colleagues in government and out of government, but 
Um, I think the one thing that probably distinguishes me the most is that uh, I'm the elephant in the room. I'm the Republican, and I think everybody uh, knows that. Uh, and uh, that helps me in certain parts of the city. It certainly is not helpful in other parts of the city. But let me just say this. I, I first ran in a nonpartisan special election in February, coincidentally, uh, almost 10 years ago, February 24, 2009. I was only 24 years old. People said I wasn't in the right party. I didn't stand the chance. I wasn't going to win. I've kept uh, that seat. I've won uh, four times. In my last re-election, I got 66% of the vote in a three-to-one Democratic district where whites are not a majority of the population according to the census. So I have a nine-and-a-half-year track record of reaching across the aisle, working with Democrats and Republicans on important issues to senior citizens and to my constituents. I chaired the Veterans Committee for four years. I'm very proud of that. I talk a lot about veterans' issues. My brother is a Marine and I represent a part of the city where there are many veterans, uh, many of whom are aging uh, also. Uh, I spearheaded the effort to create the Department of Veterans Services. A lot of people said that wasn't going to get done either, and we made that happen. Tish James was a big help to that as well. I gave her a shout out today in the city council. Uh, but the part of my job that I relish the most, which is why I'm interested and in, in thinking of running for public advocate, is the fact that you can give a voice to people who feel like they don't have one. You can give a voice to the most vulnerable New Yorkers, people who feel like they're not represented by the lobbyists, by the corporations, by the politicians, by the powerful interests. That's what I have always been about. And if I do decide to jump into this race and give it my all, and if I am fortunate and blessed enough to represent the city as a public advocate, I want to continue to do just that. And I want to thank you again. And, thank and, you. Uh, thank uh, my fellow colleagues here on the panel. Thank you. Councilmember Williams. Uh, thank you, Ben, AARP, uh, Citizen Union, New York Law School, of course, the former public advocate. I, I do want to do one thing first. I know what it's like to be on the outside uh, looking in, so I do want to recognize Theo Chino and David Eisenbach, who also are trying to, in the back over there, who will plan on... Uh, Adonis? Oh, I didn't see any Adonis uh, Rodriguez, who also uh, have expressed interest in running for a public advocate. Uh, my name is Jamani Williams, um, council member from the 45th District. Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I've been a council member for, thank you. <laughs> I've been a council member for nine years. I am a community organizer by training. Uh, that's what I did. Did it before uh, Barack Obama was elected, so no one knew what it was. Uh, I would come into rooms and say I'm a tenant organizer. People would say, oh, you have teaching tennis lessons. They would ask me for sports lessons. Uh, my mother thought I would never make a living. Uh, but I knew I always wanted to make um, substantive change uh, in particularly social uh, social justice issues. Uh, so for me, running for city council was a natural extension of the work uh, that I've done. This is all I've done. I uh, try to attempt to make transformational change in a power structure and uplift people's voices who feel their voices aren't lifted up enough. Uh, I am a public school baby uh, from preschool to master's, educated in New York City public school system. I did that uh, while having Tourette syndrome and ADHD. Uh, I do have Tourette, so you may see me shake a little bit. Everything's okay. I'm cool as a fan. Uh, one of the things I heard often uh, that I was too much of an activist, uh, that I had to choose between being an activist and elected official, and I said, no, you don't. You don't have to choose. In order to do my job correctly, I have to be both. And that's what I set out to do. The two things was to be an effective activist elected official and provide transformational change. Uh, and I have been blessed to be able to lend a voice to so many issues uh, before they became popular. Uh, 
So dealing with abuse is a stop, question, and frisk. Uh, talking about the 1%, talking about uh, marijuana reform, talking about a whole bunch of issues that people told me I should not touch. And I'm proud to have passed over 50 pieces of legislation in the city council, more than any other sitting council member. I'm gonna, that I'm gonna stop you there. If, yeah, yeah. council member. Oh, oh, my bad. Ms. Smalls, go ahead. Great, thank you. Um, I want to thank the AARP and Citizens Union for hosting this forum. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to tell you a little bit more about myself. Um, my name is Dawn Smalls and I am a mom. Um, I am an attorney and I'm a first-time candidate. Um, I have experience in two Democratic presidential administrations, um, first in the Clinton White House and then uh, at the Department of Health and Human Services at the Obama administration where I played a key role in the initial implementation of the Affordable Care Act. For the last three and a half years, I've served as a commissioner on the Joint Committee on Public Ethics um, at the request of soon-to-be Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins. Um, and I am bringing to this race two decades of experience across law, politics, government, and philanthropy, and believe that I am the most qualified candidate running for this position. Um, I look forward to telling you more about my background, um, but let me tell you why um, I'm running for public advocate. Um, I am running for public advocate because I believe in government as a force for good, um, but only if it works. Um, I think the public advocate plays a critical role in holding um, elected officials accountable and believe that you need somebody that is outside of the current political structure uh, to do that. And I'll, and I'll stop you there. We'll, we'll get back to a little bit more Great. about that. Assemblyman Member Blake. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. To AARP, to Citizen Union, to, to Ben, to New York Law School, uh, to of course Betsy Gottbaum and others, uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. My name is Michael Blake. I'm a candidate for public advocate. I'm just elected to my third term in the State Assembly in the South Bronx, a district that has owed more money when it comes to public school funding than any in New York City, a district that has 21% of residents that live in public housing, a district that Khalif Browder was our constituent and we addressed when it came to raise the age. I'm the son of Jamaican immigrants. My mother for 40 years worked at a manufacturing plant. My father for 29 years as a member of 1199 SCIU was a janitor. I come to you as someone who most lost his life not once but twice. So I come to you focused on how do we fight for the people. Then to your question about the accomplishments, look at what we've done in the last four years. My Brother's Keeper, we're the only state in the country for $56 million has been focused on helping young men of color to go to school and graduate from school. We worked with Danny and Joe Lentall and our speaker on changing Raise the Age so that 16 and 17 year olds are not tried as adults. We're focusing very clearly on what do we do to make sure we're helping when it comes to minority women-owned businesses. And today is a clear indication of why you need a public advocate. When you look at what happened with Amazon and standing up against that disastrous deal, and when you think about NYCHA and what happened with Judge Pauly's announcement on today saying a complete breakdown happened with NYCHA, that is why I'm running to be your public advocate. We're here to fight for the people. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Assemblymember O'Donnell. Uh, good evening. My name is Danny O'Donnell. Many of you know me because I was the first openly gay man elected to the New York State Assembly. In the last 16 years, I have passed monumentally changing legislation such as marriage equality, the Dignity for All Students Act, which recognized transgender people for the first time in New York law, which was a very important step. I'm an attorney. I was a public defender for seven years in Brooklyn. 
I've served as the chair of the ethics committee where I conducted investigations and I understand the importance of subpoena power. I was the chair of the corrections committee where I went to 38 state prisons to talk to the inmates, to ask them what their conditions were. And I'm currently the chair of the arts committee where we are for the first time addressing the decade long decrease in funding to arts and tourism in our budget. I'm running for public advocate because I don't want to be mayor. And I believe anybody on this panel or in this room who's doing it for that reason is disqualified. Because you have to have an independent outside voice who's unafraid of the consequences of telling the truth. And I'll tell you, I'll stand on my 16-year record up against anyone's about the ability to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Ms. Konst? I have a different mic. Hi, my name is Nomi Kikonst. First, thank you to Citizens Union, Ben Max, NYU Law School, AARP, and former public advocate, Betsy Gottbaum. I am not a politician. I am an investigative reporter. I am somebody who just got off of two years sitting on a reform committee tasked with investigating finances, corruption, processes, processes of the Democratic Party, how the Democratic Party took a billion dollars and lost 1,200 seats in 10 years. That's what I've done in the last two years alone. I got to know Citizens Union because uh, they gave me this award called the Defender of Democracy for the work I was doing on covering the IDC. Citizen Union and Gotham Gazette were paying attention to the IDC when nobody even knew what it was. They didn't know what it stood for, nobody was covering it, and no one was covering the news on the ground. And I'm so grateful to Citizens Union for recognizing that work early on and supporting journalists on the ground floor who are not receiving the funding anymore because of budget cuts and because of attacks on journalism as we see in federal government. I'm running for public advocate because it is independent. It should be independent of politics. We are facing a crisis in New York that is so outrageous when it comes to real estate and to tax perks. As Michael Blake just said, there is an Amazon deal that is about to, to, to happen in Long Island City, in my own neighborhood, that could have been called out early. The reason why a politician should not be in this position is because they need to understand early when things go wrong. Some politicians signed on to that deal last year. And of course, the process was not transparent. But it's not a surprise how Amazon, the biggest company in the world, with the wealthiest man in the world leading it, how they do their business. We saw it in Seattle. We saw it in Texas. We know what Amazon does. They've already displaced so many small businesses in this city. And now they're taking it to our city on the land itself. Politicians should know that before they sign on to a letter, not after the process. That is why a public advocate exists. They Thanks. have to be independent of special interests, political machines, and this is a nonpartisan election. Remember that. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to switch up who talks first. Sometimes that means that some of you sit for an extended period of time before you get a talk, but, but it comes back around to you quickly. So we're actually going to come back and start with Ms. Smalls in the middle and work our way around uh, back towards me and then to the other end. Okay, so. Uh, Councilmember Williams will speak last in this round, all right? Uh, the, the, I want you to describe how you see the role of public advocate, but if everybody could start with first, what's the number one responsibility? What do you put above all else when you think about what it means to be the public advocate? 
What's the first number one responsibility? And then take it from there as you see fit. So um, thank you. Um, I think the public advocate is the independent actor that makes sure that city government is working on behalf of New Yorkers. Um, and city services are being provided to New Yorkers in the best and most efficient way possible. There's lots of reasons why that may not be the case. It could be corruption, it could be inefficiency, it could be the inability to get things done. And so I think the public advocate needs to look at the full suite of issues about why we cannot solve some of the city's most intractable problems, which I would put at the top of the list, the subway, affordable housing, homelessness, um, as well as voting reforms. The public advocate is somebody is an elected official that's elected by all five boroughs of the city, and so therefore, just like any other citywide elected official, should be talking to anybody that has province over the issues that affect New York City residents. And that means talking to the, to the governor if necessary, that means talking to the legislature if, ne if necessary, and that means talking to the federal government if necessary. And that's what I would do as public advocate. Thank you. Assembly Member Blake, the, the number one responsibility and then the rest of the way you see the role. Number one responsibility is to be the watchdog over the agencies and then fight for the people. And again, the last 24 hours was clear and evident of this. Uh, a, a deal that was discussed and de decided upon in the middle of the night that no one knew about in any real manner. When you see what's happening when it comes to NYCHA, and again, what Judge Pauly conveyed, when you think about affordable housing and the proposals that have not actually moved the needle in any real manner across our city, when you think about what's happening with Department of Education and clear, not just ineptitude, but problems across the board with community schools and renewal schools, that is exactly why you need a public advocate. And you have to be one that can connect what's happening, city, state, and federal, to make opportunities and results on the ground. We are looking at what's coming up next year. When it comes to immigration, when it comes to education, when it comes to health care, when it comes to housing, how will you be a watchdog to stand up and fight for the people? Now, of course, when you think about the opportunities, you have the opportunity to introduce legislation through city council. You have the opportunity, of course, for oversight. I do think you need to move forward in the way that Tish has conveyed and what she's done successfully in utilizing lawyers to stand up for the people as well. But fundamentally, when you are deciding who has achieved things and who will fight for you, the number one priority is to be the watchdog of the agencies on behalf of the residents of New York. Thank you. Senator Member O'Donnell. The number one job of the public advocate is to be the critical eye on the way the government is providing and not providing services, which means the most important thing is independence. Independence from the mayor, independence from the governor, independence from those power brokers so you're willing to stand up to them. You also need someone who has experience doing investigations like I do. Because when I was chair of the Ethics Committee, I had to investigate Vito Lopez for sexual harassment, which was not a pleasant thing to do. But I completed an investigation in six weeks in full compliance with the EEOC and used my subpoena power to get to the root of the story. So the first piece of legislation I intend to introduce is to give the public advocate subpoena power to be able to beef up their investigations to ensure they get to the truth of the matter. Thank you. Ms. Gons? The public advocate is there to shine light in all the dark places of the city, expose it, and take it on. Yes, the public advocate is the watchdog of the city, but there are a lot of root causes of the problems that we face that hit every single community. From, from NYCHA housing, not receiving proper funding, to these, these deals that are happening, these tax breaks that started in the 70s and are happening right at our doorstep today, these are the reasons why our communities cannot afford to live in their homes anymore. 
This city is unlivable. So what the public advocate can do is catch these things early on, to catch the deals at the local level, to see how the, the machinations of political parties are working with special interest groups to, to cut deals in government, to pass bills. I propose right away to make the, this office truly independent of the mayor and make it so that we propose a charter commission so it is not second to the mayor. That'll stop a lot of politicians from being in an office that's supposed to be an independent watchdog of the city. Thank you. Back to you, Councilmember Espinal. I believe the public advocate, yes, should be a watchdog. Yes, should shine light on the issues. Yes, uh, be able to push the mayor when he's not making the right decisions. But I also believe the public advocate should be responsible for making sure that we have a plan that's going to benefit the future of New York City. For example, we're right now a city that's driven by crisis. Every time we have people talking to City Hall is because something went wrong. Nitra's crumbling, the MTA's crumbling, but no one's talking about what are some sustainable solutions and how the city should move forward to make sure that those problems do not end up in our steps of City Hall. So I do believe the public advocate should put a platform that not only finds ways to address those crises, but also finds ways that we can make sure we're heading in the right direction. So as public advocate, that's what I plan to do. Push the mayor when there's a lack of leadership from City Hall, from Albany, be able to be that voice that says this is the way we should be going and, th and this is what the people want. Thank you. Councilmember Ulrich. Thank you very much. The most important job that the public advocate has is to be a check on the mayor. You know, we have a strong mayor system in this city that has been set up by the Charter Revision and the Office of the Public Advocate was supposed to be or was designed to be, I believe, a check on the power of the executive branch in this city, not a rubber stamp. You know, Mark Green drove uh, Rudy Giuliani crazy on uh, many issues, but he did a very good job. He's very effective at being a check on the mayor. Betsy Gopom was a very fair but uh, critical uh, of the Bloomberg administration at times when there were issues that were happening or things that the administration was ignoring. Uh, Tish James did a very good job being the public advocate, shining light on uh, waste, fraud, and inefficiencies in various uh, city agencies. But I think that sometimes when the public advocate and the mayor belong to the same party that people expect or want them to get along, that's not the way it was designed to be. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And there are many areas where Mayor de Blasio has failed miserably in the city. And I think the press gives him a free ride sometimes because if it was Mayor uh, Bloomberg or Mayor Koch or Mayor Dinkins or any other uh, mayor in the city's history, they would have been given a much uh, harder time over this. But that's where the job of the public advocate comes into play, to be a check on the mayor, to hold the mayor accountable, and to be an independent voice for the people of the city of New York. Before Mr. Williams, uh, Councilmember Williams speaks, just, just on behalf of the press, Mayor de Blasio does not agree with that assessment. Just, just, so, just, just so, so we have that, so we have that straight. Um, Councilmember Williams, go ahead. Thank you. Um, you know, we should go to the charter. The charter is abundantly clear on what this job was supposed to be. Let's be clear, the position has been around in some form since the 1830s. But when they decided to make it an elected position, they said it should be an ombudsman and a watchdog. So that is the number one thing that this office should do and do effectively. Uh, one of the things that I think hasn't been used is this charter cop. The, uh, the public advocate uh, is uh, empowered to make sure that agencies are doing their job according to the charter. And so I want to use that even more. Uh, I want to make sure that people feel someone is watching the mayor, the city council, the agencies to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. I want to say something else. 
I want people to listen to what's being said. Because we can all talk about what the issues are. And the reason I said I wanted to be an activist elected official is because I needed the activists to be able to point those things out, but the elected official to help solve the problem. And so I didn't just talk about what these problems are with gun violence. I didn't just talk about what the problem is housing. I passed legislation and I changed policies, whether it was friend or foe, the mayor or the governor. I stood up and said wrong is wrong. And that's what we need in the public advocate's office. Someone who's going to raise the issue and then be able to solve it. Whether it was going from 20, I probably created more jobs than the governor, definitely more jobs than Amazon. We are now up to 70,000 youth jobs in the city of New York. I said, if you're going to give money to the $5 billion to the police department, we have to make sure that every single young person in this city can get a summer youth job, because the biggest way to address youth crime is a job. And so we don't just need words, we need solutions, and I've proven to be able to do that no matter who is in the way. Okay, quick, um, before we get to the next round here, just a quick... Uh, sort of jump ball. Councilmember uh, Ulrich pointed out three of the four people who have held the office of public advocate and gave them praise for something. Does anybody want to jump in with something they've seen done by a prior public advocate that is something they, they think they would emulate in the role? I mean, I think what, what I love most about Letitia James is that she passed the most legislation that any other public advocate has. has. Um, I think it's important that we use uh, and exercise that power. That's the only way we're going to create real change. Yes, yelling and screaming and making sure that the mayor is doing the right thing is the right is, is helps. But we all should be we all should be putting work, policy forward that's going to change the direction of our city. Thank you, Assemblyman Member. You look at what Tish has accomplished with the bad landlords list, uh, and and continue to press forward on that. And when we think about the crisis of affordable housing, when we think about the crisis of housing as a whole, uh, that is a priority. But we have to now take it further. When you think about what Aaron Carr is achieving with housing rights initiative and rent stabilization by the bad actors that were taking tax credits and actually not doing the right thing. When you think about how we have to be focused on vacancy uh, rent regulations and decontrol in that matter. So we have to know who the actors are, but then we have to actually make changes thereafter. Okay. Uh, and so we have to continue in that way. Anybody else? Go ahead, council members, whoever. Um, you know, I'm just going to do first and last. So obviously, uh, the, uh, the public advocate, the new attorney general, did some good and experimental things uh, with lawsuits that I'd love to see uh, continued, uh, raised the voices of a lot of people whose voices wasn't heard. She's actually been doing that. She's a council member. But I do want to mention the first, uh, Mark Green, who actually put out a very good template of uh, being a check uh, and suing the mayor and winning uh, several times. And so uh, from the first and the last, I okay. just to And lastly on this, uh, Councilmember Ulrich, and then we're going to start a new Thank round. Thank you. I'll, I'll be very brief. Here. You know, I like Bill de Blasio when he was the public advocate because he did a great job calling out the corporate greed and the corporate giveaways and the corporate welfare and the cozy relationships <laughs> between the big corporations <laughs> and the decision makers at City Hall, but then something happened. He became mayor and he forgot all about the tale of two cities. He forgot about his roots. He forgot about his commitment to working class people and the working poor in the city. And that is why we need to have a public advocate who is the tip of the spear holding the mayor's feet to the fire and calling him on the carpet when it needs to happen regardless of what the issue happens to be. All right, we're going to um, start with Assemblymember O'Donnell here and come towards me uh, again. So, um, this one is going to be a 30-second answer. Can you provide an example, a specific example, of when you spoke up against members of your own party in power um, and, and took them on? Here we go. They're going to accuse you of uh, 
me planting the question. I endorsed Cynthia Nixon for governor, okay, when I sit in the state assembly. So you don't have any idea how difficult that is. I voted against the 421A tax plan because it was a giveaway to landlords. I voted no on that. In You go look at my record and you find that I will be the one man or woman in my chamber who regularly votes no for reasons of conscience. And okay. I <laughs> did not sign a letter when asked by the mayor to, to be in support of Amazon. I didn't sign it. Okay, so thank you. you. Ms. Const. Huh, is this a planted question for me? I think everybody thinks this is a planted well, question. Well, so let's, let's just put this into context. I was appointed to the commission to reform the Democratic Party by independent Bernie Sanders because I had been challenging the Democratic Party on its finances for, for over a decade. I, when I worked in the Democratic Party, I saw the problems with consultants eating up all of our donations. And, it was, and those consultants were not putting it into races and actual work. It was going to big media. I was the person who independently, I wrote the conflict of interest clause that now exists in the Democratic Party to prevent those conflicts so that your donations go to actual races and not to wealthy consultants who wasted a billion dollars. Furthermore, I fought against the IDC. Those were Democrats, remember that? Oh yeah, early on when it was just a handful of folks. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's two good examples. Council member, 30 um, seconds. Yeah, so I was the first and only city elected official to endorse Bernie Sanders when he was running for president. Yes, Germani joined me towards the end, and I applaud him for that. But I was the first one to stand up and say, this is our candidate. This is the person who's going to fight for inequality and the people of our city. I also was the first city council member to take on the mayor on one of his program bills and issues, which was the horse carriage industry, and he was trying to do away with 300 union jobs, I stood on the steps of City Hall and said that I would not pass any bill through my committee to make that happen. Way before anyone decided to take him on, I was the first one. So very good, I'm very thank proud you. Of that. Yeah. Council Member Ulrich. Oh, I got a few. Um, you know, I'm a Rockefeller Republican. I'm a moderate Republican. That's how I describe myself. I'm pro-choice. I, I believe in marriage equality. I, I was in favor of it before the Supreme Court. I'm pro-union. Um, very proud to come from union household, but the one time I disagreed with my party the most uh, was when Donald Trump came out with the so-called Muslim ban, and I represent tens of thousands of Muslim constituents in my district, and there are probably a million or more than a million Muslim New Yorkers throughout the city. I just thought that was so discriminatory and so wrong that I felt the need to speak out publicly, and I took a lot of heat from people in my own party, but time and time again I've proven the ability to stand up even to the President of the United States when I know that he is dead wrong and against the interests of the people that I represent, and that's the type of Thank independence you. I want to bring to the Public Advocate's Office. Um, can you say a question again? Provide an example of when you stood up to the uh, powers that be in your own party. My name is Jemani Williams. Uh, there is, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm one of my proudest moments with the blue wave that came down. I don't know if people know, I was the only elected official uh, on that blue wave when people were running against the IDC, running against the governor and the lieutenant governor, and I helped lead that charge. And I'm very, very proud of that, that people looked at my record and said, even as an elected official, you stayed true to what you said you were going to do. I encourage people to look at my voting record, no matter who was speaker, no matter who was mayor, I probably have the most no votes when I thought something was wrong. Even when I had issues and projects on the table, I refused to vote for something that will help just my district and screw the entire city. That is the type of independence that we need. Thank you. Ms. Smalls. Um, so um, as I mentioned before, I was 
and a commissioner on the Joint Committee on Public Ethics, and that's a uh, partisan appointment in the sense that you're appointed by a Democratic leader, um, but you are on the commission. It's a bipartisan position, and you have oversight over state elected officials, um, the governor, state assembly, state senate, um, as well as lobbyists, both in the city and state. Um, I carried out those duties both in terms of investigations um, and the votes, uh, which unfortunately are not public, um, against Democrats uh, with the same fervor uh, that I did against Republicans and would bring that same integrity to the public advocate's position. And Assemblymember Blake. On Raise the Age, when you look at what happened with the budget, and there were many people that wanted to move forward on voting on a budget for it to be on time, there were several of us that said absolutely not, that it was not the right proposal to actually do the right things. When you look on the record, and you look at the very conservative, wrong procedures that were being conveyed of saying, you know what, we're going to keep these kids in longer. We said absolutely not in that manner. So rather than having people rush to get back home for vacation, we said let's do the right thing for the 16 and 17-year-olds, and we took that stand, recognizing that people would be upset, but we're here for the people, not for the legislators. So we're coming back to start this round with Councilmember Williams. Um, the, there's a lot of discussion about whether the Public Advocate's Office is a waste of money or is underfunded. Um, and so obviously folks running here, I haven't heard anybody say they're running to abolish the office, so you all believe in the office. Um, the question is, the public advocate's uh, budget is somewhere around three and change million dollars. What should the budget be? And what would you spend, I assume, the additional money on? Councilmember well, Williams. One, it's been, it's been interesting. This is the first time I've seen uh, someone say that a office that should is not empowered as it should be, instead of saying we should empower it, we should eliminate it. That doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I think, depending who's in the office, it can be extremely powerful. And, and I believe uh, someone with my pedigree can make it uh, even more powerful. Uh, there are a few things I think that can help empower it. One is it should have subpoena power. And one, it should definitely have an independent budget. I'm not prepared to say today to say what that number is. Okay. It needs to be more than $3 million. And it should be able to hire staff to do the investigations that are needed and attorneys to put the lawsuits forward that are needed and then follow up with the appeals. The public advocate has the ability to ask uh, agencies for documents legally. They should have, uh, a, I should have a, um, enough money to have a unit just to do that and do the follow-up. Ms. Smalls? Um, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? What should the budget of the public advocate be? And, and if you think it should be more than the current budget, what would you spend the additional money on? Well, um, I don't have a number um, of what it should be, but I will say what I would do with the existing resources. So I think there are, um, one of the things that I would do is reorganize the office um, to better focus uh, the public advocate's office on a few key issues. So everybody has talked about the watchdog function of the public advocate. Um, that is much more effective if you have a team of people that are laser-like focused on the subway every day, all day, um, and, and reporting when we miss milestones, we miss commitments, um, and making that information out of the public. So rather than doing a little bit of everything, um, when you have such a limited budget and you have such a limited staff, I think the way to leverage that is to really focus in on a few key issues that affect all New Yorkers um, and, and really use that watchdog status to drill down and, and hold, hold leaders accountable. Thank you. Assemblymember Blake. The, the budget certainly should be increased responsibly. wouldn't give a number at this point. But I think that there, 
you have to focus on at least four critical things if you want to mobilize the office in this manner. Someone has to be solely focused on the MTA and what's going on comes to transportation options and the mess of it. I think we're all sick and tired of it being delayed every single day when you're on the train or on the bus. Number two, you have to have someone who's specifically focused when it comes to NYCHA and public housing. Until you have that kind of laser-like focus, we can't mobilize in that manner. Number three, affordable housing, in particular, what's happening when it comes to gentrification and the challenges we're seeing across the city. And, and lastly, Department of Education. We can't continue to be in a city where we're watching this nonsense occur, where there are communities across the city that are not a part of the pipeline because we're not focused in those manners. Regardless of the budget size, the public advocate, and if you're giving me the honor to be your next public advocate, those will be four topical areas that we have focus on and put the staffing and resources around that. Assemblymember O'Donnell. Um, I also don't have a number, but it's not large enough. Uh, as I said earlier, it must have subpoena power. Without subpoena power, there's very little that can be done effectively. Um, I want to talk a little bit about overdevelopment and its connection uh, to the housing crisis, and specifically upzoning. Um, we don't need upzoning in New York. We need downzoning. And we need downzoning because we have a 1961 code written uh, that no longer applies to us. And so what you have are things like a community facilities exception, which allows people to build bigger and higher and better, and for them, for better for their money, but does nothing for the community. We also don't have height limits, which is why we're seeing the desecration of Central Park, because huge towers are casting shadows and no one is looking at these issues. So I think there needs to be a, a department that deals with development and overdevelopment and zoning. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Const. I believe that the public advocate uh, should have representatives in every single borough and every single neighborhood as their own local public advocates, independent not the borough president, not elected, not community boards, but somebody who can report back to public advocate to say what's happening in that neighborhood, what specific concerns are not being addressed by the councilmen or the community boards or the borough president's office. This is super important. Uh, second thing I would do is I would have an entire investigations unit, but I would, I would fill that investigations unit with all the out of work recorders that exist today. They know where to go, they know where to look for information. I'm gonna do a quick flashback to 1975 when Wayne Barrett uncovered the tax abatement deal that Donald Trump uh, filed under for because there was a donation from his father, a beam, to a beam to get that tax deal. Now that was an investigative reporter. It is very hard to find that information, which is why I'd also propose a conflicts of interest map. So you know where these donations are going, you know how many people uh, how, many, how many LLCs are housed in one building alone and who owns that building and how many uh, dollars they have given to the politicians that are cutting these deals. Because what happens with these real estate deals that Assemblyman O'Donnell just mentioned is it, it starts with these donations. Reporters need a conflict of interest map. The people of New York need to see who's representing them and where the money's coming from. I'm going to stop, I'm gonna stop you there. Just quickly, though, did you want to put... Uh, Oh, a uh, range uh, of a number? Uh, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but it's definitely not funded enough. That's disaster capitalism. And, Cut and you, mentioned, you don't want representation. You mentioned putting a representative in every neighborhood. Do you have a number of uh, neighborhoods? Every, well, every, every single city council district should have a representative. Okay. Councilmember Espinal, the budget. Yeah. Just to put it into perspective, the city council's budget is close to $100 million. The mayor's budget, mayor's office budget is over $100 million. So to see that the public advocate only receives about $4 million, I think, is a huge issue. We should look at numbers that really are going to give the public advocate the powers to, one, audit agencies when we need to audit them, two, make sure that when there are land use deals happening, 
uh, that we have the power to run our own independent environmental studies to make, see whether or not these deals make sense and be able to speak up whether, whether, whether they do or they don't. And three, I also believe that they should be able to run one of the best constituent services offices in the city of New York. Uh, when constituent service, constituents do not feel that they're getting properly represented, they should be able to call their public advocate, and the public advocate should have an adequate staff to be able to answer those questions. And I'm not sure if I said this earlier, they should have an independent budget, because right now, the public advocate has to depend on the city council and the mayor to decide what the budget of the office is going to be, and I think that if, we, if they truly want to be independent, we need to move away from that system. So what's the, does that, I mean, anybody who said it's independent, is that, do you have a, a, a percentage? I mean, typically how independent budgeting works is it's a certain percentage of the, either the overall yeah, city? Yeah, no, no, no percentage, I'm not sure what the number okay. is. Councilmember Ulrich. Okay, I, I don't believe in spending money for the sake of spending money. I think that the money that's there is just fine. The things that we need to do to empower the Office of the Public Advocate don't cost any money. The public advocate should have a seat on the MTA Executive Board. That doesn't cost any money. That would give that uh, individual, he or she, a, a greater role in, in trying to fix our subway systems. The public advocate uh, should have seats on lots of uh, city governing boards. Uh, on, on the CUNY board of trustees, the public advocate should have a seat to determine, you know, post-secondary education. That doesn't cost any money. But I like the idea, and I, I want to credit um, my, uh, my uh, uh, friend here on the panel for having one. I wouldn't have one in every council district. I would like to see one in every borough, to see one deputy public advocate in each borough who's independent, who answers to the public advocate, and who's responsive to the people and the communities in each borough. I think that's a fantastic idea. Okay. And that concludes the round. Okay, uh, so moving along, we're going to come to uh, uh, what's very obviously a question from one of our, our sponsors from AARP. Um, the the city is is rapidly aging, and the and the aging population is rapidly growing. Uh, the 65 plus population will soon account for about 20 percent of the overall city population. What would you do as public advocate to make the city a more aging and age friendly? City, how would you help those aging uh, and including and up to senior citizens? Of course, we're actually going to start this round back with you, Councilmember Espinal. Well, first things first, it's getting harder and harder to live in New York City, no matter what age group you're, you fall in. And we have to make sure we're investing dollars in infrastructure. Seniors are having a hard time getting to the MTA. Seniors are having a hard time uh, waiting for their assessor right to get to where they need to go. Uh, and seniors need to make sure that they have access to all the services the communities have, make sure every community has, has, has those services that they need and deserve. So we have to make sure we're putting uh, the city's budget towards making the city more accessible and easier to live in. So let me, let me just pause you for one sec. Were, were there one or two concrete things, that, though, that you wanted to, folks to hear about you know, specific uh, things you would pursue. Yeah, improve city infrastructure so seniors could get around the city a lot easier. And two, making sure that we have services that need to deserve in their communities, like senior centers, like healthcare facilities. Thank you. Councilmember Orch. Yeah, I, I have two ideas in particular. I think we need to greatly expand support for naturally occurring retirement communities, both in funding and in, and in infrastructure improvements that we have in communities so that we can allow and help seniors that want to live independently in their homes, in their communities. I think the public advocate could also play a very important role in pushing for legislation in Albany that would give tax credits or tax benefits to caregivers of senior citizens, for people that care for health caregivers and relatives and other people who struggle to provide not only for themselves, but for the seniors that they care and love for very much. And uh, lastly, I think we need to have greater set-asides in affordable housing. We have lots 
of affordable housing units being built. Not enough, obviously, we know that, but we need to have a greater set aside for senior citizens in the affordable housing units that are being constructed right now because we know that the demand is there and that the units are going to be there when those units are finished being completed. Councilmember Williams. Well, some of the things that I have done, uh, almost a million dollars in senior programming just in my district alone. I have, I believe, one of the only vertical NORCs, which is a naturally occurring retirement community uh, in my district. Uh, some of the bills that the, the actually people may not know, your temperature now has to be higher uh, start of heating season because of a bill that I was a prime sponsor of. And the two communities we were focused on was uh, seniors, active adults, and our young people. Uh, I try to make sure that my senior centers are the best they could be because uh, my favorite uh, person is in one of them, my mom. Uh, so I have to issue with a not be too thrilled if I didn't pay attention to that. Um, but I, you know, the number one thing that I hear uh, with our seniors and the population in general is housing. So I was proud to fight for ZQA, zoning quality and, and affordability, to make sure that went deeper and the set-asides for um, uh, seniors. MIH, however, did not, and that's why I voted against uh, MIH. Uh, it is critically important uh, that we recognize our seniors are losing their homes, whether it's from tenant harassment, we passed some bills to make sure we prevented that. Seniors are losing their homes through foreclosure and people, the city, stealing seniors' homes, which is something that we have to focus on and talk about. I would like to see uh, someplace that seniors themselves can call that is just for seniors so they can find out the truth of someone who's calling them, telling them that there's a special deal, telling them they want to buy their homes. A lot of times our seniors don't have proper access uh, to that information and we have to get a better pipeline to them. I want to say thank you, and I always do this when I'm in senior centers, to all of the active adults who are there because I wouldn't be here without them. Are you saying that you would create that in the public advocate's office or you'd figure, figure it out? I, it's, a, it's an idea I'd like to cultivate because I think it's needed. We have three on one, which is great. Uh, but we have to make it a little more simpler, uh, simpler for seniors to be able to call someone and get this information directly, because very often that population is preyed on, and I would love to talk to ARP okay. and Citizen Union on how to do that. Thank you. Ms. Smalls? So I'd like to underscore, um, I think, the points that have been raised already, which are the uh, need for affordable housing, or the, the measures that are needed to really ensure that seniors are able to age in place. Um, and one of the biggest concerns is affordable housing and making sure that they are not forced out of their homes. Um, the second is the caregiver tax credit, um, which I believe is up in the legislature or should be uh, this cycle um, for all of the caregivers um, to, to just try to equalize um, so many of the family members that spend out of pocket to take care of their parents, grandparents, and other loved ones. The other two things that I did want to mention is that I think NYCHA is a huge part of the senior issue because there are a, a really large number of seniors in NYCHA. Um, and so we've already talked about Amazon and the set-asides that have been given to Amazon. Um, and I would agree with uh, Assemblyman Blake that if we had money for that, um, NYCHA is a five alum uh, emergency um, and we should really be putting that money um, to ensuring that our housing stock is actually suitable for people to live in. Assemblymember Blake. You know, I, th I think about my mom and, and what we have to do to make sure that our, our seniors are able to age gracefully in their homes. So there's very specific things that we should think about. We should expand the SCREE program to make sure that we're protecting when it comes to rent income exemptions. So make sure our seniors who have done the work in our communities have the opportunities to be able to mobilize in that manner. We need to expand and have greater access to transportation 
especially when it comes to accessoride. We need to make it easier for our seniors to be able to get around our respective cities. We have to think about the five post-acute programs that are happening with our health systems. You know, someone should be able to recognize that I've done the work in our communities, I've lived in my communities, and the healthcare system will protect me and all that's happening in that way. We should continue the work of what Tisha said in terms of moratorium when it comes to the third-party transfers and being very engaged in this. This is something that was talked about in Brooklyn. It's relevant across the city. We should make sure that our tenants and our seniors in particular have a chance to be involved in that way. To something that Dawn just said, which we want to carry on. As someone who's a member of the Housing Committee and also a member of the Veterans Affairs Committee, we got to think about how we make sure our veterans have the opportunities when it comes to their benefits and their support. And equally with NYCHA, the first senior center in America is in my district, is the William Hudson Senior Center. And so it would be irresponsible for us not to focus on putting more support with NYCHA as well because it's relevant in how we impact our seniors at the same time. Assemblymember O'Donnell. Uh, there are a great many NORCs within my district which are very important to me. And I provide direct funding for, for them. They are not horizontal, they're vertical, just so you know, um, Mr. Williams. And uh, they do wonderful services. But every year in Albany, we have to fight to make sure that those funds are returned. I would also like to point out that I'm an author of a bill in Albany that would take um, Social Security income out of your SCREE application numbers. Because um, the reality is the numbers have creeped up. And I have, we named it after a constituent, a woman who has lived in the same apartment building for 70 years and she now pays 90% of her income for her rent because she's in a rent control department. And so we need to do something to alleviate that pressure. We also need to make sure that seniors can get around. And I think that the city should consider um, moving the bus system out of the MTA and make it part of the New York City Department of Transportation so they could do a better job of ensuring that the buses are moving because that's the primary mechanism that seniors use to get around. Ms. Const. Uh, I believe that this is an intersectional issue. Uh, we're hearing a lot about housing. We're hearing a lot about medical uh, issues. What's happening with the entire city is that it's not being funded. NYCHA is not being funded. That affects the most vulnerable communities uh, at the, uh, first, and that includes our seniors. MTA is not being funded, and that affects transportation first. We're giving off $3 billion tax breaks to Amazon, and to these real estate developers who are not protecting our citizens. No senior citizen should have to be evicted, as I read last week, for a $40 power bill in Bed-Stuy. I would make sure that these senior citizens, and I like the idea of having a hotline or some way that we are speaking to our most vulnerable communities, who have direct access to not 311, but to the public advocate's office, because I've heard too many times on this campaign trail, as is only been on it for a month, too many times that people have called the public advocate's office and have not gotten responses. That needs to stop. And that starts with seniors, because it's very difficult, as we all have friends and family members who are seniors and who are struggling uh, to get through to their government and have to rely on caregivers, on family members, and, and many of these seniors are working. 30% of the income to working seniors goes to rent. And it's the highest rate of eviction right now. That is the job of the public advocate to deal with these real estate crisis issues that affect the most vulnerable community members. And I believe in the caregiver's tax credit, and I think that uh, the public advocate's office should be protecting seniors when they're not receiving, uh, uh, Medicaid is supposed to cover this, when they're not receiving that tax credit, because uh, no, no caregiver who's usually working more than one job uh, should not be able to receive that. So we're going to um, follow up on that with a, no a related question. We're starting with you, Assemblymember Blake, uh, coming right back to you. Um, AARP New York and partners, including the NAACP, released a report 
um, earlier this year that highlighted disparities in health, economic security, livability among residents 50 plus in communities of color specifically. Uh, these are longstanding issues where there are disparities uh, in those communities compared to white communities. What do you think is one thing as public advocate you could pursue to address these issues? We have to focus on healthcare very uh, accurately and, and in that manner. When we think about the, the intersectionality of AARP with our seniors and our communities of color, too often we are addressing the crisis on the back end. We're not focused on wellness and prevention. One of the things that we can do as a public advocate, what are you doing for the HHCs, for the, the hospitals that are here in so many crisis centers? But too many times people are showing up too late when things are occurring. So concretely, number one, let's look at the things that we've worked on thus far. Green Bronx Machine, which we've been focused on, how do you focus on wellness and prevention on the front end so you're not having the crisis on the back end. When we think about the opportunities with DISRIP, which is the Delivery System Re Reform Incentive Program, the funding that comes to our community-based organizations around wellness and prevention as well. It is a crisis that we're not addressing. Take it even further. It is not just about the physical health. It's also the mental health. Too often we are not addressing the crisis in our communities the way we need to be. Too often we're talking about opioids. Yes, we need to talk about opioids, but we also gotta talk about the crack and powder cocaine epidemic that's been happening, and the impact that's been happening in communities of color for so long. If we're not addressing the dynamics when it comes to our health aid systems as well. So this is all in totality when we think about the dynamics that exist. The Bronx is the most diverse county in America according to the census, 89.7% likelihood of any two people being a different ethnicity. If we are not addressing the health and the wellness of our people, we're not able to move forward in a, in a, in a manner that will actually transform New York City. Assemblymember O'Donnell, what's identify, please, one thing you'd do to fight this disparity? Uh, I would focus on what's called food deserts and getting more access to more fresh fruits and vegetables into communities of poverty. Um, that is, there are systems out there that are happening currently, and they do a great deal of success. Obviously, processed food is deadly for you. It just is designed to make corporations richer. And so if you have people who live in places where they don't have access to that food, uh, likely their health ac outcomes are not going to be as positive. And I believe the Public Advocates Office is the perfect place to do that, to both promote it, to organize it, to work with the State Department of Agriculture to get these farm folks from Columbia County, from the Hudson Valley, and get them into places where people need access to good food. Ms. Const. Could you repeat the question? Sure. Uh, AARP and, and several partners, including the NAACP, released a report earlier this year that highlighted disparities in health, economic security, and livability among residents 50-plus years in age from communities of color. What's one thing that you would do to address these disparities that break down along color lines? I would sue the landlords that are evicting, evicting our elderly. And that's a health issue. It may not sound like it directly, but it is a health issue. There are food deserts in these areas, and part of the reason why there are food deserts in these areas is because we have developers who are overdeveloping other areas and attracting supermarkets, high-end supermarkets, to those neighborhoods, and they're pulling resources from other neighborhoods. So the health crisis really does go back to economics. I hate to be the wonky one on the panel, but this is Citizens Union. I feel like I have, I have the full ability to do, to do so here. If we don't deal with this real estate crisis, everyone's going to be driven out, except for the oligarchs. So when the elderly cannot afford, in, in any community, cannot afford access to fruits and vegetables, you know that's a health crisis. There was this book like a decade ago about the areas of the world where people live the longest. The, reason, the three reasons why, community, 
people in their community checking in on them, caregivers who are funded, who are able to come in and take care of the elderly that they're working with and the seniors that they're working with. Financial stress, a lack of financial stress and stable housing. Councilmember Espinal. As I mentioned earlier, I, I grew up in those same neighborhoods that are probably highlighted in that report. Uh, East New York, again, is one of the most disinvested neighborhoods the city has to offer. And we dealt with the fact that we were a food desert. So wellness, yes, is, think is one of the major think concerns that we have and we should address. We should make sure that we have more access to fresh fruits and vegetables, not only in our bodegas and supermarkets, but also in our senior centers. There should be education for seniors about how they, can, they should change their diet to leave a healthier lifestyle. Unfortunately, because of those decades of disinvestment, we are, we are, people in my neighborhood are set with a mindset that they don't understand that fresh fruits and vegetables can lead to, the, to them spending less on medicine and, and spending less on medical care. Two, we should protect green spaces. There's no reason why seniors shouldn't have access to the great things that both your neighborhoods have. We should have make sure that our community gardens stay in place, our parks are getting uh, well invested in, uh, making sure that they are able to go to a space where they will be able to uh, relax, spend their time, and have better mental health because of that. Councilmember Ulrich. Thank you. You know, in, in my office, I imagine it's the same for many of my colleagues. Um, so many of the seniors uh, that call that need help uh, with issues, they, they keep calling us after we help them with those issues because they, they befriend the people that work in our offices, the caseworkers, and the people that, that really care so much about their well-being. Uh, so many of them are lonely. Uh, some of them have lost a spouse. Uh, some of them are honestly just looking for someone to talk to. Uh, their family members have moved to other states or to Long Island or to other places. Uh, maybe some of their friends have passed on and, and they really don't have many people who want to even listen to them. I think that if there's any way that we can improve the overall mental health of senior citizens who are feeling symptoms of depression or who are depressed or have other mental health issues, it should be to set up a shop and many of the senior centers work with so many of the faith-based organizations throughout the city that have roots in every community board and in every neighborhood throughout the city to set up shop there, to listen to the senior citizens, to try to figure out what problems are occurring in their lives or in their communities, and then to try to address them, but to set up some form of communication pipeline where they actually feel like someone listens to them and actually cares about the things that uh, are bothering them. Councilmember Williams. Thank you. Uh, I want to look at it slightly different because someone mentioned intersectionality. It is uh, obviously clear here. Uh, you cannot get better if you don't have a place to live. Uh, it's also hard to get better if you don't have access to good food. So this, we, we do see how this intersects. But I want to talk about resource inequality. And so I want to talk about pointing out where our government is putting their resources in these communities. So very rarely do I say, I try to talk about income uh, inequality, I talk about resource inequality because if communities have the resources they need, it would look a lot different. We have to be able to call people out, like the governor who was failed time and time again, uh, whether it was 421A, whether it was housing. We have to call out the mayor when he's failing, whether it's management on NYCHA, whether it's agreeing with this Amazon debacle. Everyone, they are giving $3 billion to the richest person in the world. Give me two of those billion dollars and I will show you how we can address almost all of the issues we have discussed here today. And that is not a pie in the sky dream. That takes someone with the will and the courage to call these people out and get that money for the people of the city of New York, not for Bezos, not for Amazon. We're gonna create $25,000. Why do you need Amazon if you have $3 billion? 
we can be creative to do that ourselves. And Ms. Smalls. So um, I would agree with the resource um, allocation. Um, again, going back to the core functions of uh, the Public Advocate's Office, one of them is to investigate and to publicize what is actually happening in city government. The only thing, <coughs> excuse me, that I would add to that is uh, to make sure that city government is fully taking advantage of all of the resources um, and all of the funding that um, would potentially be available to it. So when you think about Medicaid, when you think about community health centers, um, I think of my time at HHS, I think that applies to a lot of federal agencies uh, as well as state. Okay, a couple jump ball questions. Does anybody want to say anything good about Amazon coming to New York City? Well, you know, I want to, oh, Does anybody want to say anything good about Amazon coming to New yes. York City? Well, Councilmember Williams was first. No, so. no, let's go ahead. <laughs> Started the conversation about what happens when <coughs> disaster capitalism has hit its peak. And okay. I'm really happy to see lawmakers step up and talk about this in an open and less wonky way. Okay. Anybody else? <coughs> if it was done right, you could have a game-changing opportunity for minority women-owned businesses and investment in creating jobs in our communities. Well, like we, we can't ignore, but the reality is the way it's been done right now, there's been no real community engagement. If you actually had the chance to address the fundamental challenges around poverty and job creation and economic opportunity, that could be a good thing. And until you actually see that happen, we shouldn't move forward on this deal. Any other takers? Yeah, I am, um, because a lot of been talking about this letter, I signed the letter. Uh, and I say that because it would have been derelict in my duty not to be part of a discussion about possibly bringing 10,000 jobs to this city. There were no details in that letter. And so the next conversation we had, and I want to call names, because if you want to be public advocate, you have to have the courage to call names. We had a governor who can't give away as much money as he would like to give away, and we see nothing return. And we have a mayor who every day is not the mayor that I endorsed in 2013, and it's disappointing. And those two folks couldn't get together for the MTA, they couldn't get together for NYCHA, they couldn't get together for housing, but for freaking Amazon and $3 billion. Someone has to be able to call that out. Any, anybody else? Councilmember Espinal? I'll yeah, come back so to you real quick. I, I didn't sign the letter because I don't believe that we should be wooing corporate companies into our city. We are the richest city in the nation. We do not need the richest companies in the nation to come here and try to run our city. Okay, this, so, qu this question was about something positive about yeah, I the, po the positive, the positive, the positive, the positive is that what we've, what we've seen is that they're elected officials who believe in corporate welfare and not the welfare of the people of this city. And lastly, you're, you're gonna agree. You, you wanted to say something else, I thought? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I don't sign letters that don't have any details in them, okay? And the, I read the letter and the mayor's office badgered me to sign it and I said no, not because I'm against small businesses or I'm against people having jobs, because a letter filled with no details allows the powers that be to fill them in later. Thank you. La last quickly. That's not actually true, but okay. I was given the floor. I was given the floor. I was given the floor. We're yeah. going to talk about calling names. It is absolutely important. The first line of that letter was, we as a unified elected body urge New York City 
to attract Amazon to New York. Amazon did not start last year. Amazon started over a decade ago. We saw what happened all over the country. If we want to start naming names, you know what? You can't be a show horse, you have to be a workhorse. Accepting money from these companies and then, and then signing letters for them and then retracting when the political winds blow the other way, we are not in a livable city. This is public advocate. This is why it has to be independent. Okay. So, um, first of all, I last last two comments here, Councilmember sure. Williams, uh, and then Assemblymember. Uh, first of all, uh, being an elected official comes with responsibility, and even though I've heard that you shouldn't be an elected official and get this. You will be an elected official if you get elected, so I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I actually did uh, help lead the charge uh, on the blue wave, and I thank you, Namiki, for your endorsement when I ran for lieutenant governor. I want to say that letter was the opening of a discussion, uh, uh, opening a discussion about jobs in the city. In no way, shape, or form that I believe signing a letter saying I'd like to talk to you about 10,000 jobs gives a license for the failure that I've seen with this plan. That's not what and it I, said. Read right, the letter. All right, I have the mic, but thank you. Um, um, in no way did it give a license for the failure and dereliction of duties I've seen for this governor and this mayor. I have called them out. I will always call them out. I've called them out here. And I believe if you want to be public advocate, you have to call people out okay. when you and see And tell the stop. truth. Okay. Lastly, Mr. Blake, go ahead. Well, Did as you the vice chair of the National Party that got Democrats elected across the country, we can talk about who actually helped with the blue wave. But we'll, we'll leave that for another day. The focus of the question itself around Amazon in that manner, there were separate letters. There was a letter that several of us, myself included, signed in terms of trying to encourage Amazon to consider coming to the Bronx because of us living in the poorest congressional district in America. There is a difference from what happened in the last 48 hours, where a secret deal was agreed to in which the governor himself conveyed that he believed he could go and not engage with city council and do it directly with the Empire State Development. There is a dramatic difference in this, and we have to be responsible with rhetoric. When you are elected to lead people, first and foremost, it is to help people. And so when we are trying to help, but equally it means standing up when you see that something was wrong, which several of us said what is happening right now is unacceptable. If you could find $3 billion for Amazon, then find $3 billion for these kids. Find $3 billion okay. for these schools. We're going to move on. Quick uh, jump ball here. Uh, Assemblymember O'Donnell talked about downzoning. Uh, there seems to be a lot of talk here about uh, as public advocate, reigning in development, uh, not letting real estate have the run of the city. Does anybody want to give a little more comment about how to build more housing in this city, build more affordable housing, any agreements, disagreements with Assemblymember O'Donnell's position on, on seeking out down zonings? Did you want to clarify something? Yes, I do. Go ahead. Uh, the problem is down zoning doesn't mean you can't build. It just means if you're going to build, you have to go to a community. I represent a fabulous community, and if you went to them today and said, I want to build a 22-story building here, and 11 stories of it is filled with affordable housing units, they would say yes in a minute. The problem is they don't have to come anymore. All, everything they have is as of right, and they build these huge towers, and, and it's destroying the quality of our life. Long Island City has turned into Little Dubai, okay. and that's not really what we bargained for. So the question is, just yeah. to be clear, you can comment on what Assemblymember O'Donnell said, but the question to be clear is, as public advocate, how would you use that position related to development in the city? I was, uh, you know, I'm proud to have gone from a 10 organizer to chair housing and buildings uh, last term. But I just want to show how complicated this is. And now everyone, how many people think that homelessness 
is a tremendous problem in the city of New York. Please raise your hand. How many people believe that the answer to homelessness is not shelters but housing? Raise your hand. How many people want a taller bill in Lexington? Raise your hand. There you go. And so this is what the issue is. The question was, do you want a taller building built next to you? Raise your hand. Thank you. But this, this is the problem across the city. Because people want the solutions, but just not next to them. So I don't actually call it down zoning. I call it contextual zoning. Because the only way to get to this is to build housing. What I don't like is the way this has been done without any community input at all. And so communities can tell you where they can take a little bit more density and where they can't. But what we can't do is uh, do a broad stroke uh, and think okay. that it fits all communities. And as well as 421A was a debacle by the governor, and MIH was a debacle by the mayor and aided by the city council. Here's where we're going to go. Councilmember Ulrich and then Ms. Smalls. And then Part of the problem, uh, Ben, gets back to the point I said before, that the public advocate doesn't have a formal role in the process itself. So the public advocate doesn't have a seat on the city planning uh, commission, for instance, which does have a role in the EULA process. Right now, it's only the city council, the community board, the bar president, and the department of city planning and the, and the commission. Well, the public advocate has one appointment on the city the, planning. Yeah. They do have one appointment, but that doesn't have substantial input when it comes to down zonings or rezonings in large parts of the city, or especially in parts of the waterfront where the mayor has the majority and, and, and he or she gets to do whatever they want. And that's part of the problem. So what would you do? We should increase the representation that the public advocate has, along with the city council speaker, to balance the scales on the city planning commission so that there can be a balance when it comes to deciding what type of development will occur in a particular neighborhood for the next 50 years, because that's when these things come around in our community. Ms. Smalls. Um, one thing that the public advocate could do under its current powers is that, um, you know, developers make all kinds of promises when they're seeking approval about you know, what they're going to build and what they're going to do for the community. I don't know how much follow-up there actually is to make sure that they follow through on those commitments when they're getting ready uh, to unveil them or open them. So, you know, having somebody that is laser-like focus on, you know, what was, what was presented to the community board or the city council when they, when they initially sought approval and hold them accountable to make sure they actually deliver that um, in the end result. That is a concrete thing that the public advocate could do to hold developers accountable. Okay, and Ms. Constant, then Assemblymember Blake, and we'll wrap up this round. I think there's some very good ideas. I uh, think, uh, rep uh, con uh, Councilman, not Congressman yet, uh, Ulrich, about representation <laughs> in the City Council. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, just taking it a little bit more granularly, when these, when these development deals happen, and I think that's a very smart idea to make sure that there's continuous follow-up and, and pushback on uh, these developers. But to put this into a little bit more context, I was going around five boroughs asking uh, uh, folks about what their biggest issues when it comes to um, housing is in the last month. And one thing that came up that I've never really heard brought up is now when you are uh, seeking to, to get a new apartment in New York, in many parts of New York, Manhattan, you have to make 80 times the rent per year to even qualify for rent. In some parts of Brooklyn, it's 60 to 80. In some parts of Queens, it's 40 to 60. I would put forward a piece of legislation immediately calling that out. I, was also, I would also do what LA does and make sure that these developers and these, uh, these rent, uh, the, rent the, 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 the renters are paying for the broker's fees and it's not going on the rentee because that's completely unfair. That's illegal in Los Angeles. You shouldn't have to pay for those broker fees. And the third thing uh, that I, I 
running out of time. Okay, <laughs> December, remember Blake. Go ahead. It'll come, don't last, worry. Last comment. Uh, as someone whose mother was once homeless and had to sell dinners myself to make sure we, we kept our house in the Bronx, there's very concrete things you can do as it relates to your question. Number one, when you think about in January and February when we, when we will have democratic control in the state Senate and in the state assembly, we cannot ignore that you have to address what's going on with vacancy decontrol and rent regulations and the policies that have absolutely ripped apart our communities. Number two, we should fully fund and expand what's happening with housing rights initiative. What Aaron Carr has done around addressing rent stabilization so that it actually is truly stabilized will adjust these conversations that are happening that way. Number three, something that was raised, let's train and empower our community board members so they can understand the impacts of these deals. Too often people are saying something is good and it's great when it's actually not. Let's walk people through the process so they can be empowered in that way. Number four, let's be responsible when it comes to air rights and not just give air rights away. You have to address the fundamental problem, Ben, when it comes to supply and demand when it comes to affordable housing in that manner. And lastly, when we think about what's happening, incentivize mixed-use development in a proper way. What we're doing with WEDCO in our district right now, where we're going to have affordable housing, a music heritage center, and training of communities at the same time, if you empower the developers that are doing it the right way, the community organizations that are doing it the right way, that's how you can have affordable housing in, that, in a manner that can transform the city. So we are in roughly our last 10 to 15 minutes here. Um, we're going to have a couple more questions and then a, a lightning round of yes or no's on a, a bunch of issues that could all have discussion, but at least we'll get folks on the record about their stances on a few things. But before we get to that, uh, Councilmember Ulrich, we're going to start with you this round. Not everybody has to answer if you, you know, you've all said a lot. If you feel like skipping, feel free. But the question is, as public advocate, going back to sort of how you'd run the office and how you see the role, are there other parts of government, civic life, ways of using data? What are the, what are the other areas outside the office or how would you run the office in terms of utilizing other resources in the city? Are there, are there places you would partner with? Um, are there ways you would use data, et cetera, et cetera? A absolutely. Um, I I'm very proud to be a Baruch College alumni. I went to graduate school there, and I have to tell you that some of the brightest uh, and creative minds in our city are right in our higher education system, in our CUNY system. And I would love for the city of New York and the Public Advocate's Office to partner with CUNY in various ways to conduct research that would normally cost tens of thousands of dollars, even if we're talking about you know, not just scientific research, but public polling and trying to understand neighborhood needs and doing assessments of particular categories of groups of, of the population. The CUNY students, uh, I think, are the best resource that we have in the city and the most untapped resource that we have in the city, and it's probably the most diverse and caring and creative and intelligent uh, potential a source of information and talent that we have in the city and if there's any way for us to partner with them and to bring them in in a formal role. So many young people want to make a difference in our city and they just don't know how. They've never been asked. If there was a way for us to set up through the Public Advocates Office some sort of team or partnership or agreement with various CUNY schools, I think we could do a lot of good and find out a lot of interesting stuff about big data and how we use that data to influence public policy in our city. Thank you. Uh, just one from the last question, because housing is critically important, and I wanted to make sure I mentioned that 421A is a debacle that needs to be reversed on the, on the state level. On the city level, where we do have control to open up that MIH process that is the basis of so many rezonings that we don't like, and I'm asking people to pay attention to rezonings that happen in the city. We generally only pay attention to those that are on the news, but every single um, uh, 
council hearing, we're voting on rezonings. I am probably one of two people that are usually voting against or abstaining on rezonings that are damaging to the community. And of course, rent regulation, uh, which was stripped away from 421A, we used to use it to negotiate, is up uh, in June of next year. We have to focus on that. Um, the Public Advocates Office, uh, I've been thinking about how to reconfigure. I love that uh, CUNY idea. Uh, I did something such in my first term, using CUNY to do some resource and survey assessments, which will turn out to be very well. Uh, two things I want to make sure. I want to make sure the people who are doing the individual intakes are doing a, uh, a, a are doing a job of talking to the rest of the, of the team so we can catch patterns and practices, so we can put forth um, solutions to the patterns and practices uh, that we've Second found. thing quickly. Second thing is um, the, the charter cop is something I really want to focus on. We have the ability to make sure that all agencies are doing their charter mandated duty uh, and they have to respond to the public advocate, and I want to increase okay. the funding to that area because that's something I think that hasn't been used previously. Thank you. Ms. Smalls, if you want. The question was... Well, are there other resources in civic society or ways you would use data or other, sure. other tools in, in running the public advocate's office? Sure. So um, one of the things that hasn't been mentioned thus far is the fund for public advocacy which is a fund within the public advocate, advocate's office to try to advance change or try new ideas. Um, uh, besides, before Amazon um, dropped its news about coming to New York City, one of the things that I was most um, excited about is, um, was Jeff Bezos' um, commitment and billion-dollar commitment to focusing on homelessness and, and really figuring out if there was a way to get some of those funds to really talk to, to try to flesh out some new ideas about how we can attack um, the homeless problem in New York City. I think there's an even more compelling reason why we should get some funds to explore that now that Amazon is coming here. I think there are a lot of both private and philanthropic partners that we can um, bring in and partner with through the Fund for Public Advocacy, and so that's something that I would, I would definitely do in the office. Senator Member Blake, go ahead. You know, Reshma Sajani, who has Girls Who Code, would often say we have to be the creators, not just the consumers. And so when we think about, to your question, two specific things. From technology, we have an opportunity that, that's happening in this manner. Uh, something we did at the DNC, Democratic National Committee, we purchased 94 million cell phone records across the country, specifically 787, so that we can understand our Puerto Rican sisters and brothers that were coming to the states and figure out how to mobilize and connect within that manner. Why is that relevant to this position? The census will be one of the, this will be the first time where you're not collecting it on paper, it'll be happening through tablets. And so you have to be able to have an outreach arm that's thinking about technology in a different way to engage with our communities. Secondly, when we think about our organizations, Generation Citizen has been doing remarkable work when it comes to civic engagement. One of the things we have to be thinking about, this is not just running a race in February for a special election. If and when you are elected, you have to prepare for a race in September and November thereafter for the remainder of the term and to make people aware of something happening where you have for the first time a, a citywide special election in this manner. So you have to empower people and make people aware of what's going on in that, in that framing. I believe when we think about how civics has been taken out of schools and, and that mobilization, there's a way to use data, technology, and civic and citizen engagement to mobilize us in a practical way, which the public advocate should be doing. Assemblymember O'Donnell. I'll pass, Ms. Const. I'll give you two ideas just off the top of my head. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, the Me Too, how many guys know what Me Too is? The Me Too scandal. Everybody in this audience knows? Okay. So that came out of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Harvey Weinstein was a major contributor to 
uh, the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. He's, that is arguably one of the most progressive uh, DA's offices when it comes to sexual assault cases. If that's happening in Manhattan, there needs to be somebody that oversees uh, what's happening at the DA's office. I would call for a commission dealing with sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment, whether it's sexual harassment in the city with any agencies we're working with, which, with any, uh, uh, any deals that are happening with the city. It's a space where there are experts in this area who set the policy around it so that HR in every single office knows how to deal with it and uh, that we could take in complaints. Um, that should never happen again. A second thing I mentioned is we, we do collect a lot of data in this city and New York City is ahead of the curve when it comes to data collection compared to many other cities in terms of digitizing it. The problem is it's not being released to consumers. It's not being released to everyday people. And frankly, it's not even accessible to reporters who have to FOIA everything. And you know how long that takes sometimes to, to get your, your data. So I would uh, produce a, to begin with, a conflict of interest map, something that's easily accessible for reporters to look at, to know where the money is coming from, where it's going, how it's affecting bills, how it's affecting uh, the lawmakers who sit in city council, who are the chairs of the housing committee, are they accepting money from real estate? I mean, this is important to know for every single neighborhood in the city. Is your city council person accepting big real estate money or special interest money? Okay, and Councilmember Espinal. I, I believe we have to modernize the Board of Elections. I think we saw recently what happened because they decide to use antiquated systems in order to count every vote, but what's happening is that voters are being disenfranchised. What we need is to modernize it by creating online voting, online registration. This is the year 2018, and I believe we could move towards that direction. Okay, thank you. All right, so let's move into our lightning round of yes or no answers. Um, if you have a very brief answer that's not yes or no, you know, you can toss that in there, but looking for mostly yes or no answers as we uh, round out our evening here. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with uh, different, different people, different time. Please, please allow us to allow us to finish the event. Thank you. So, thank you. So we're gonna. I'm gonna go through this, sir. Please. We're, we're running. We're running the, the program. Thank you. So. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get going here. Thank you. Okay. So. Um, Just make one comment on this. I'm sorry. Both of these candidates did go through the arduous process of our CFB and, and, and filing. It's not an easy process, so I do want to give them credit. David Eisenbach earned 92,000 votes in the last election, so I do think that they should be on stage with us. I know there's a lot of candidates, uh, but I do want to recognize that it's not an easy process. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to move into our final questions here. So, um, I'll start with different people different times. Uh, yes or no answers please. Uh, if you need to give a brief response, that's fine too. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, Councilmember Espinal at the top and come this way and we'll start with different people different times. Uh, yes or no congestion pricing for for New York City. Yes, but not the only answer. No, hurts the boroughs outside of Manhattan. 
Um, just a correction, the Me Too movement was started by Tarana Burke, and it's a, a black woman. Uh, we have to begin to empower our black women and make sure they're not usurped. Um, the, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, Ms. Smalls? Yes, but with um, protections for low-income um, residents of the city. Senator Member, go ahead. Yes, yes, with modifications. Yes, I've already voted for it twice, but it's not enough money. We need a millionaire's tax. And Ms. Const. We need an oligarch's tax, a millionaire's tax. We need to tax Amazon, and I don't think congestion, congestion pricing is fair. No congestion pricing. Okay. To working people. Thank you. Starting with Councilmember Ulrich's time, uh, do do you own a car, and do you have a monthly Metro card? Uh, yes, and yes. Councilmember Williams. Yes, I have a Metro card. Do you have a car? Yes. Okay. Ms. Smalls? Both. I think most people know that. Here. We don't, we don't need to. We don't need the proof. We don't need. To, we, we trust you. All right. But you and can show them off if you want, Miss Smalls. I have a car and I have a metro card and took the metro here today. Okay, Assembly Member. No and yes. No I'm car. Right. Yes to a monthly metro card. Assembly Member O'Donnell. Yes and yes. Okay, and Miss Const. No car and I buy a weekly metro card. Weekly metro card. Councilmember Espinal. Being the outer in the outer parts of the outer boroughs. Yes and yes. Okay, and starting with Councilmember Williams. Uh, do you support uh, the soon-to-be-proposed legal defense fund, uh, a concept of a legal defense fund legislation moving through the city council? Yes. I'm this, would be, this would be uh, legislation to allow elected officials to raise money oh. under certain rules to pay off legal bills uh, for, for legal defense. Uh, um, I haven't heard much about it. What I have heard, I would say no right now, but it, it, I need for, to for, Okay, let me give a tiny bit more background. Yeah, I don't know. There have, been a few, there have been a few instances of this, uh, not just Mayor de Blasio, but most notably Mayor de Blasio, where there's been uh, legal bills accrued by elected officials, and uh, they have to figure out how to pay those legal bills related to either their work in politics or government. This has also happened with Councilmember Debbie Rose on Staten Island, uh, among others. And so there's now discussion of legislation in the city council to allow the creation of legal defense funds where elected officials could raise money to pay their legal bills. So back to you, Councilmember Williams. Is that something you think you will support? I confuse it with the immigrant legal defense fund. Um, I would just say right now it's a no, but I really, this is a new thing, but it doesn't sound like something that okay. we should be putting money into. Ms. Small? If you're I, not familiar, you know. Well, the one caveat, I mean, I, I think right now taxpayer money is being used. So if that's the case, then I, I think it'd be preferable for them to raise the money um, rather than using taxpayer money. But Ta Taxpayer money is often used if it relates to their government position. This is more about things related to politics where they accrue legal bills. Well, I know that de Blasio has used taxpayer money in for his legal it, defense yes. as a former commissioner on the Joint Committee on Public <laughs> Ethics. And all I would say is if the choice is to use taxpayer money to defend yourself against ethical violations or raise that money from people that want to support you, I would support that. Okay. Some of them are Blake? No. Some of them are O'Donnell? I've never heard of that until this very evening, and I don't know the details, but I'd be disinclined. Okay, thank you. Ms. Const? No. Uh, Councilmember Espinal? If it doesn't t cost the taxpayers uh, any money, I would say yes. Okay, Councilmember Ulrich? Yes. Okay, and we're going to start this round with Ms. Smalls. Um, do you support ranked choice or instant runoff voting coming to New York City? 
It's two different names for the same thing. Uh, yes. Some member Blake? Absolutely. Some member O'Donnell? No. Ms. Const? No. Council member Espinal? Yes. Council member Ulrich? Yes, but not in a special. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Just reminding everybody. <laughs> yes. Councilman Williams is a yes. Okay. Couple more. Um, do you support the city moving forward? Oh, and we're starting with Assemblymember Blake here. Do you support the city moving forward with the BQX train car project from uh, connecting Brooklyn and Queens? No. Assemblymember O'Donnell. Not until we fix the buses. Ms. Const. As a Queens resident who goes to Brooklyn all the time, I support it in theory, but we've got major priorities Count, ahead of it. Councilmember Espinal. Money should go to the MTA first. Okay. Councilmember Orch. No rewarding de Blasio's real estate buddies and donors. So the answer is no. Um, Councilmember Williams. The concept, but I don't think I no I no longer trust this administration with those those kind of projects. And Ms. Smalls? We've got a lot of other things to fix first. Okay. And we'll start this round with Assemblymember O'Donnell. Um, if you couldn't vote for yourself and you had to vote for someone else on the panel up here, who would it be? I'd like to correct you. That is not a yes or no question. It's a, it's a one word. Danny, I love so, you. Uh, um, uh, let me just say that there are a number of people on this table who are my colleagues in government, and I know them very well, and I happen to like and respect every single one of them. I just met Ms. Smalls tonight, and I just met Ms. Cons two days ago. I have nothing bad to say about them. If I'm not in the race or if I'm not voting for myself, I have no idea who I'll vote for. Okay, Ms. Constance, would you like to make a choice? This is so hard. We're just learning. I mean, some of these candidates just announced today. Uh, I, I, I've learned so much about so many of, of uh, the fellow candidates. I admire your commitment to ethics. I admire Ms. Small's commitment to ethics. I okay, admire okay, okay. Our <laughs> Espinal's let's not, independence. Let's not do that. But yes. I think it needs to be somebody who's independent, so I'm going to go with Ms. Small's. Okay. Well Councilmember Espinal, do you have a choice? Um, there's a lot of great people up here, um, but if, if uh, I want to continue laughing and there's someone up there who's going to hold the mayor accountable, I'll go Eric Ulrich. Okay, and <laughs> Councilmember Ulrich. I got two votes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it is, that's the toughest question tonight, by the way. I just want to say that for the record. <laughs> uh, rap on I, a I would have to go with uh, Rafael Espinal. He's okay. been a great friend. And, uh, hey, oh, we got a bromance. Councilmember Williams. Uh, Bipartisanship is I love Giovanni. <laughs> Just as much. I love yeah. him. I only vote for one. Councilmember Williams. <laughs> Not going to do it. Okay, Ms. Small. I've been a candidate for two days, so okay. I'm going to pass. All right, Assemblymember Blake? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Last two, uh, and we're starting with Ms. Const. Um, do you rule out, or is it on the table to run for mayor someday? I do not want to be mayor. This position should have nothing to do with being mayor. I absolutely vow to never run for mayor, hold it in writing, take this and put it in ads. Councilman Espinal. <laughs> Too much of a headache. I like, I like uh, bullying the mayor. Okay. So that's uh, totally off the table or? I haven't even thought about it. Okay. Councilman Gorge. You bet I would. If I'm lucky enough to be the public advocate, <laughs> the next step on the ladder is Gracie Mansion at City Hall. It's the most important job in the city. You almost, I mean. In, in fairness, you, you considered running uh, previously. So, Councilmember Williams. All I can say is that I'm not running for mayor in 2021. 
Uh, the word never is, is a weird thing, but I have no intention. It's not an interesting word. Okay, Ms. Smalls? Uh, no, Candidate I, for two days. How, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate the honesty. I think it's really important that whoever uh, takes this, runs for this job and takes this job explicitly say that they are not running for mayor, and I am not running for mayor. Some member Blake. So I don't have a plan to. However, we got to also be responsible. It is actually indicated that if the mayor steps down, public advocate becomes mayor. Run so for mayor. So, so, I understand. That that. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. And the reason why that's relevant is because then you then would have to make a decision at that point right. if that were to occur. Why do you think I'm here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I go back to the last question sure. to go with Ehrlich? Uh, okay. Somebody, somebody okay. convinced so, you. So yeah, um, uh, the answer is no. Not ever. Not ever. Not ever. Thank you. Okay. I've got more questions, but I think we're going to end it there. You've heard a lot from the candidates. If I could just, um, if I could just quickly, Councilman Williams, hold on, hold on. If I could just quickly, um, if I could just quickly say thank you again to New York Law School for for hosting tonight, Citizens Union, AARP. Thank you all for being here, and thank you to the candidates. This election will be in February. We don't know the date yet. Hey, Ben. Ben. Thank you.